couple of announcements we have tonight. First of all, on the 21st, we have our men's uh, prayer breakfast. And so we'll be continuing what we're studying, which is starting to get into some really interesting material. One thing I did want to announce, um, because we at West Houston Bible Church support Chafer Seminary as one of our missionaries, Chafer Seminary has a policy that if you are a member of a church that supports the seminary at a certain level, then those who are members of that church can take any courses, up to two courses a semester, and you just have to pay some of the fees, which just comes up to about 60 or $70, I think, for the, for the course. And so this is a really great thing for some of you to avail yourselves of. You can audit. You don't have to do the assignments or all the reading or everything else, but it gives you an opportunity and access to some some coursework that you may be interested in, Bible study methods, uh, which is I I enjoy teaching that every now and then. It always stimulates me a little bit in my own application of study principles. You always learn something new or you realize you're just not doing something or whatever it is. But it's good because it enhances your own Bible reading. Uh, So you can look things up and figure out uh, to get a little bit more out of your Bible, your Bible reading. Plus, also, I'm going to be teaching on Monday night from 6.30 to 9.20, the course on uh, Amer- church history, most of which is American church history. We'll have about three lectures that will deal with how things that are going on in Europe impact American theology and American uh, pulpits, but mostly it's going to be related to a lot of uh, of American church history. And so many of you will want to watch that because that's not the kind of thing that you ever get taught in a, in a local church. And most people are pretty ignorant of it. And several of you came and helped be part of the audience uh, last uh, spring when I taught through the first half. So that will begin uh, a week from this coming Monday on August the 23rd. So those are those two announcements. And then the other announcement is that last night, sometime in the night, the Lord sent his angels to escort Emma Stark to be in the presence of her Lord. And Emma is survived by her older sister, Catherine Stark Tapping, and by her two older brothers, Don Stark and Jess Stark. And so be in prayer for the family. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we are so thankful that you are our rock and our fortress. You are our high place. You are our shield. We trust in you, and we know that you deliver us from the trials and tribulations and adversities of day-to-day life, or you will deliver us from them or through them or take us out of them. And, Father, we are thankful that we can always look to you. We can claim the promises of your word. We can be strengthened and encouraged uh, by your word and by the God, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who strengthens us. And, Father, especially at this time in our nation's history, we pray that you would give guidance and direction to those who are leaders in this nation, who understand biblical truth, who understand the Uh, laws of divine establishment, the divine institutions, and the necessity of having these in place in order to provide stability and peace and tranquility in a nation. And without them, there will just be collapse and chaos and disorder. And, Father, we are to pray for our leaders, for presidents or kings, to pray for those in Congress, senators, pray for governors, mayors, all of the those who lead and direct our school systems and other things, that they might make wise decisions, which means they have to orient themselves to your word. And in, right now we live in a nation where they are in rebellion against your word. They have ignored you and forgotten you, and that always leads to uh, disaster. But, Father, we pray that there would be a change And if not, we pray that you would give us the strength to do the right thing as we uh, face this chaos. And, Father, we know that the only hope, the only light, comes from your word and from the, the Son, who is the light of the world. And so we pray that there would be a response to the gospel as people see the uncertainty of life that is always there but often veiled by our own rationalism. And so, Father, we pray that we might be a light and can give hope through the words of Scripture to those around us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and open your Bible to Joel. Some of you may take a little while to get there because you haven't been there in a while. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, somewhere after Daniel. And you can uh, just uh, just go to the first chapter, and we'll be looking at some verses there as we continue our study of the day of the Lord, because we are looking at Second Peter 3.10. So when we look at the beginning of this passage, it mentions the day of the Lord. So we have to understand it, and that phrase did not just come out of thin air. It wasn't something that Peter thought up or God the Holy Spirit suddenly uh, revealed to Peter, but it has a rich history in the Old Testament. And in order to understand it, we need to look at some of these passages. We've gone through a lot of this before, but we're looking at these passages for some other, uh, perhaps some things that we weren't looking for in the past, and just to understand what is going on here. And what I'm going to do tonight and next week is tonight we're going to look at Joel and Amos and maybe Isaiah, starting in Isaiah. Isaiah, there are several passages in Isaiah to pay attention to, so we won't finish that. 
But then when I finish Isaiah, before we go into Zephaniah and some of the others, I want to stop a minute because we're going to formulate a hypothesis as we go through tonight based on what we've seen so far. But then there is a different view that is a view I have taught in the past that we need to look at some of these other passages and just walk our way through them to see if indeed there needs to be some refinement of what we have uh, taught or been taught or understood in the past or whether uh, we just strengthen our own understanding of that of that concept. So we're in this third chapter of Second Peter, and in the main part of this chapter, verses 3 to 14, we see that God is refuting through the writings of Peter the false teachers and their denial of the of a literal second advent or second coming. Now that really sets the stage for this because when you have that word second coming, as I pointed out, the the Greek word is parousia and it's either used for the rapture or it's used for the second coming at the end of the tribulation. That is critical to the context of 2 Peter 3. So that suggests that when Peter then uses the phrase day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3.10, and he describes what appears to us to be uh, the complete annihilation of the present heavens and earth, that maybe that's hyperbolic language that isn't exactly what he is talking about. Now, we have all been taught primarily that that destruction and the coming of the new heavens and new earth is something that occurs after the thousand-year millennium, after the great white throne judgment, then there is a new heavens and new earth. The fly in the ointment is that if you were Peter or you were in Peter's audience, and you were writing about the new heavens and the new earth, you would have a frame of reference for that phrase, for that term, the new heavens and new earth. It doesn't come out of thin air. It actually has, uh, is used twice before in Scripture, in Isaiah 65 and in Isaiah 66. And there is not a premillennialist that I have ever read that does not recognize that Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 is talking about the conditions during the millennium, not after the great white throne judgment. And that's a pretty strong hermeneutical argument that when somebody comes along and uses a term, we studied kingdom in the past, we looked at uh, the concept of uh, of the Holy Spirit just this last Sunday in the beginning of the Gospels that when you have uh, John the Baptist coming along saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then he sees Jesus and says the one who comes after me is going to baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. Nobody said, well, what's that? Who's that? We never heard of him before. So obviously there was an understanding of the Holy Spirit they had an understanding of the kingdom as the kingdom of David, as a literal geopolitical kingdom, because that's how it was used throughout the Old Testament. So when Peter uses the phrase new heavens and new earth in 1 Peter 3.10, this is not something that doesn't have a biblical 
uh, context and a biblical reference. And so it looks like what it, like it's a complete destruction and there's the debate. And in my personal studies, I have heard of this position. It wasn't unknown to me. But as I pointed out, I think previously, is as I have studied this, I've discovered there are a number of uh, very solid, reputable, premillennial, pre-trib dispensationalists who understand this to not be uh, what happens after the great white throne judgment. And that as I have studied their arguments, at the very least, they have legs. They may not be correct. Remember, I have the hermeneutical rule of spandex. Just because you can wear spandex doesn't mean you should wear spandex. Okay, so just because something can mean something doesn't mean it does. But in the past, I've been rather dismissive of the position and recognize now that that I, I jumped to a conclusion there. So we have to look at these details and what these terms mean because they are important for the study of prophecy. And there's a lot said about it, and there's a lot of, um, shall we say, there's a lot of ink and several forests that have disappeared on the face of the earth because their wood was needed to make the pages for the uh, innumerable volumes of writing just on this topic of what exactly is the day of the Lord from a dispensational premillennial pre-trib background. So we looked at that, and here's the passage, Second Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You have that same language in First Thessalonians chapter 5, and it's, not, and it's talking about the second coming. So this, this, these kinds of things are, can't just be dismissed easily. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements with, will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It sounds good, doesn't it? All the key words that you think indicate complete annihilation can mean other things. Words never have just a very narrow meaning. Sometimes they do, but Generally, they have a broad meaning, and so they can be understood in other ways. So we have to start with the first phrase, what the Bible teaches about uh, the day of the Lord, which is where we started uh, last time. So we asked the question, what's the day of the Lord? And I went through, read a lot of quotes, but just to summarize it, the first position, that of Schofield and others, was that it began with the second coming doesn't include the judgments in the tribulation. It just begins with the second coming, maybe a few judgments right, right there. And then it goes through the millennium to the great white throne. That's the day of the Lord. Then the second view is the more popular one, especially those from a Dallas seminary background, because this dominated. This is what we were all taught as if it came down from Mount Sinai. Uh, the day of the Lord fr- goes from just after the rapture and through the millennium to the great white throne judgment. So it includes uh, everything from just after the rapture, all seven years of the trib, all 1,000 years of the millennial kingdom, the 
a rebellion of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium, and then the great white throne judgment, and then Revelation 21.1 talks about the new heaven and new earth. So that's the position of Harry Ironside and Lewis Berry Chafer, John Walbert, who was the second president at Dallas Seminary, Charles Ryrie, who was the head of the theology department when I was a student, Dwight Pentecost, R.B. Theme, Reynolds Showers, who is the resident in-house theologian for Friends of Israel, and Ray Bowman, who taught theology at uh, Dallas Bible College when I first moved to Dallas. And um, uh, I had two roommates who both went to Dallas Bible College. What's interesting is Showers, who I'll refer to more next time, because he's got a host of arguments for why the Day of the Lord includes the millennium that we'll look at, maybe not all of them. But the resident theologian right now, is um, Mike um, Stallard. All of you know Mike Stallard. He's been here. He's spoken at the Chafer Conference two or three times. And Friends of Israel sends out a, a weekly, daily blog, and he wrote the blog last week on the Day of the Lord. So I immediately looked at that. I think I saw it when I was stopped at a stoplight, glanced down, saw the title on the email, pulled into a parking lot and looked it up and read his whole article. And he suggests, which is quite a move, he suggests the possibility that because of the context, there's a strong possibility that maybe Second Peter 3.10 is talking about uh, the second coming and not after the second coming. Now, he didn't commit to that. I texted him. I said, so are you taking that position? He said, my feet are firmly planted in midair. <laughs> and I said, I'm with you. I'm working my way through all of that at this time. So um, that's interesting because... Reynolds Showers was in that position before, so he's taking maybe a different position, but he sees the, at least the validity of the argument. And then the third position is that the day of the Lord refers to the second coming or the end of the millennium. It doesn't, in, never includes anything related to blessing. It's always judgment. It's always divine judgment uh, on those who have rebelled against God and deserve discipline. So, and ultimately, all the ones that have happened in the past are just types or pictures or foreshadowings of the uh, one that comes at the end of history. So, this is Richard Mayhew and uh, Randy Price and Tommy Ice. I'm not going to say it's their position, but they have both told me for years that they kind of think Dick Mayhew's got the best argument. And then uh, there's the view that it's only the tribulation, only Daniel's 70th week, and that's Arnold Fruchtenbaum's view. And then I thought this was interesting. Lou Barbieri, who was taught at Moody Bible Institute for many years, except for six or seven when he taught at Dallas Seminary in the late 70s, uh, wrote a commentary for Second Peter. And in there, he takes the position that it's second coming, but he has a really unusual view of the day of the Lord. He says it's the, it can refer to either the rapture or the second coming. 
you know, he doesn't mention judgment. I thought that was kind of an odd position. But that's just generally the positions that are out there, and that's not an exhaustive list, okay? So I could probably spend a lot of time researching and come up with eight or nine more views on the Day of the Lord from dispensationalists. So it's, it's a problem to deal with. So I asked the question last time, what do, how do we determine the meaning of the Day of the Lord? And one of the things that, as I'm looking at this, we're going to actually evaluate each of these eventually. But one of them indicates, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, that in 4, 5 we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, that doesn't say he completes his ministry, just that God sends him before... And then there's this phrase, great and dreadful day of the Lord. Is that a technical phrase for an intensive period of judgment just at the end of the 70th week? Or does that, is that a synonym for day of the Lord? And it refers to this whole seven years just as day of the Lord does. That's an important issue. And so that's, Elijah will come. That would not personally, he's not going to be resurrected and giving, given a nasty, corrupt, mortal body again. Uh, he is, is going to, as Jesus said, if the Jews had believed in Jesus as the Messiah, John the Baptist, he said, would have been Elijah. He would have fulfilled that role. So this is someone who's coming in, in, in the spirit and in the power of, like Elijah did in the Old Testament. In Second Thess 2.3, we are told that uh, the day will not come unless the falling away, which I think refers to the rapture, comes first, and the man of sin is revealed. Now, we're going to look at that in, de- in a little detail because it doesn't mean, it means first in an order or series of events, that would mark the beginning. That's really how that word uh, is used, the word first. It's not that it happens and then the day of the Lord comes afterwards, but it's, it, it indicates that that which kicks it off, so to speak, the first in a series of things at the beginning. So we'll come back to that. And then, uh, and that, that deals with the, um, and then the man of sin is revealed. First the, apostasy or the departure and then the revealing of the man of sin who's the antichrist and then a passage we'll look at tonight sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood and that is said in joel 231 to be before the coming of the great and awesome day of the lord so again is great and awesome day of the lord a technical phrase for an intensive period at the end of daniel's 70th week or is it uh, a synonym for just the whole period of Daniel's 70th week. So you have, those are the, are the basic issues. So just to review, the, we looked at the phrase day of the Lord. It occurs 19 times in Old Testament passages, but there's additional phrase that are highly debated that, uh, when you see that day or the day or the great day of the Lord or the day of God, that these are pass- are words or phrases that indicate the day of the Lord. And basically, it refers to God's special interventions into the course of world events, 
to judge his enemies, those who have rebelled against him. So there are historic events, as we studied last time in Obadiah, uh, verses 1 through 14, identified the this discipline on Edom in time, something that happened in history already, that that was a day of the Lord, but it is a foreshadowing of the ultimate great day of the Lord. Then... Um, all of these that happened in history find ultimate fulfillment in the return of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation at the second coming. So we're going to look at some key patterns. Now, I apologize if you can't read that, but that's a lot of information, and I tried to beef it up, and I didn't have time to completely redo that whole slide, but I will point to what you need to know. It starts off with looking at the united monarchy with David beginning his rule around 1010. The first temple, Solomon's temple, is built in 967 B.C. And then the divided kingdom starts in 931. This is not to scale, but I just have to make the second period just as big as the first, so there's room for the label at the top. And then you have Israel in the north, and Judah in the south, Israel in the north goes out in 722. The southern kingdom goes out, and it's just, uh, the temple's destroyed in 586 B.C. Then there's the gap of 70 years, and then there's the return from exile and the southern kingdom of Judea. Now, that just gives you a timeline. What you can see just visually, just spatially, is that Obadiah, which we looked at last time, is a prophet eight, around 848, 841 B.C. That's about here on the timeline of Judah. Not long after him, or about the same time, you also have the prophet Joel. We will look at Joel tonight. So he's right in there almost at the same time as Obadiah. And then the third is Amos who is sometime later, and he is around 752 B.C., and his life or his ministry is basically during the time of Isaiah, who's 740 to 680. He just precedes Isaiah a little bit. So next time we'll look at Zephaniah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and some others as we get there. But that gives you an orientation. Obadiah is the first to use the phrase, the day of the Lord. And then Joel says quite a bit about the day of the Lord. And Amos says a couple of important things. And we probably won't get into Isaiah a whole lot. So we looked at Obadiah. His name means servant of Yahweh, servant of Yah, or worshiper of Yah. And he is primarily announcing judgment on Edom. Edom is to the southeast of Judah to the south and to the southeast of the Dead Sea in the area where Petra is located, sort of the southwestern part of the modern nation of Jordan. And what we learn from that is that the judgment in verses 1 through 14 were on a historic judgment that God announced against Edom. Edom being the descendants of Esau, the cousins of, of, of Israel, 
Uh, Jacob and Esau were the twins. Jacob is the uh, forerunner of Israel. That was the name that God gave to uh, Jacob. Uh, he is the grandson of Abraham. And so there's this jealousy that develops between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob. So that judgment happened in the past. Then in verse 15, as we'll see, the, it states that the day of the Lord is upon uh, the day of the, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. That certainly takes it into a broader perspective than just Edom. And so with that shift, the shift is to the future. It has not yet been fulfilled. And it talks about a, a destruction of the nations that have rejected God. And then the day of the Lord ends with the establishment of God's kingdom in verse 21. So it looks that just on the basis of Obadiah, that the day of the Lord is a time of judgment and not blessing. And that it ends before, just as the kingdom is established. So this is what we re read last week. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. That is Obadiah speaking to Edom. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, this is God speaking. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually and they shall drink and swallow as though, and they shall be as though they never had never been. So God is announcing their complete destruction in 16 and 17. And for Israel, he says in verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. And, uh, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. So fire burns up to stubble. It'll be destruction of Esau. And that occurs when the uh, Messiah comes down to rescue Israel in Basra. And I believe that's about Isaiah chapter 63, where you read about him coming up from Basra with his robes dipped in blood. Obadiah 9, verse 19, The south shall possess, that is the Negev of Israel, will possess the mountains of Esau. The lowlands shall possess Philistia, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim. And Samaria. So this is talking about the uh, Messianic kingdom when Israel finally uh, scores all the land that God promised to Abraham and has all of that. And at the end we read that um, the Israelites will possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, which is up in um, uh, Phoenicia, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then Savior shall come to Mount, Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's how it ends. The kingdom will be the Lord's. So the day of the Lord seems to end there. Joel, whose name means Yahweh is God or God is Yahweh, uh, gives us much more information about the day of the Lord. The term Day of the Lord, which I'm abbreviating as DL, uh, the Day of the Lord is used five times in Joel. And 1.15, 2.1, 2.11, 2.31, and 3.14. Uh, 3, and as you look at the structure here, 
what happens in chapter 1 is that there is the warning that there is a judgment coming that is uh, God is sending a plague of locusts. This is not symbolic. This is an actual plague that will eat up all their crops and destroy their, their produce. And the result of this is, of course, judgment on the nation And that if they lost all of their crops, they would lose all the income, they would lose the food, and it would bring economic uh, disaster uh, upon the people. And so the first chapter is speaking about this literal judgment that occurred in history. And we read in Joel one fifteen the first uh, use of this phrase, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. So here we see a use of the day of the Lord talking about an event that has already been fulfilled in history. And at this stage, it is all judgment and it's not a time of blessing uh, at all. Now, if you look at uh, verse 6, there is a uh, comparison there. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Am I looking at the right passage? No, I can't read. I was reading from 8. For a nation has come up against my land. This is the, the locust. Strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion. He has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine, ruined my fig tree. Israel is often described as a vine or a fig tree in the Old Testament. And he has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. So this is the warning, the judgment that is coming to to Israel. So they are literal locusts, grasshoppers that uh, destroyed Israel's crops and their countryside, ravaged their fields. And so the message of Joel at that stage is that these uh, natural, that natural disasters like locust plagues are uh, warnings of future divine destruction. So this is that message. It pictures this future disaster that is going to come on the people. Now, Joel doesn't have a lot of chapters. It's not a long book. There are three chapters in Joel. And so when you get into the second chapter, there's a transition that takes place from the historic judgment of the locusts in Joel 1 to a future destruction that is described in Joel 2. So the army of locusts described so vividly back in verse 5 are now the focal point when we get into chapter uh, chapter 2. 2, 18 to 27, which we'll look at in just a minute, transitions from the historic judgment to the future judgment, and then 28 to 32 really speak about these cosmic disturbances that take place at the time of the end of the tribulation period. So in 2.1 we read, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. That's where the temple's located. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. 
For the day of the Lord is coming and it is at hand. Now, we know that when the Bible speaks about the coming of the Lord is at hand, God's timetable is a little different from ours. It is near, but it is not necessarily around the corner. We see the same thing. The Lord's coming is near, stated many times in the New Testament, and it's been 2,000 years. And then we read in verse 2, it is a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So look at that imagery there. It is very much a negative picture. There's, there's no light. We'll see in Amos that he says it's a day of darkness and there is no light. So we see that same picture here, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spreading over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them. Now, that is a fascinating phrase, because if you remember in Daniel chapter 12, in Daniel 12:1, Michael... Uh, this text says, at that time, this is talking about the tribulation, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And that statement is echoed in Matthew twenty four twenty one, when our Lord is talking about the end of, the very end of the tribulation, and he says this will be a time of, of tr- disaster and trouble unlike any that has ever been uh, before. And so when we're in, uh, in Joel uh, 2 here, and we read this line that, These people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will ever be any such after them. When we legitimately compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that this is talking about, that must be talking about the same event, a future event. And uh, verse 3 says, and I want you to, I'm going to do it. So I want you to do it too. I want you to circle that first, second word in verse 3. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. See, that's the picture that we have in Second Peter 3.10, that there's this fiery destruction of the earth. So that language, in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the second coming, it also speaks that he says, I come with fire. So that is one of the lines of evidence that people bring out to suggest that, no, that Second Peter 3.10 is not talking about a destruction uh, of the earth at the end of the millennium, but this fire destruction language is used throughout Scripture to describe the second coming. So... Um, and says at the end of verse 3, Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like swift steeds. So they run with a noise like chariots over mountaintops. They leap like the noise of a flaming fire 
devours the stubble. So this is a vivid picture of an invasion that is destructive of everything in front of them. And then look at verse 10. which Verse 10 says, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I think it's maybe the next slide. No, but I'll get there. Verse 10 says, the earth quakes before them. Where have you read before about massive earthquakes? Remember at the beginning of of, uh, Matthew 24, after the disciples say, well, what are the signs of your coming? And Jesus talks about the fact that there'll be wars and rumors of wars and there'll be uh, earthquakes and plagues and disasters. That's in the first seal judgments at the beginning of the tribulation. So that's what we read here. I'm not saying this is that because you have several massive earthquakes that take place during the tribulation. The uh, earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and their stars diminish their brightness. Now, if this is in any way chronological, this is the first time there's a mention of the sun and moon growing dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The reason I bring that out is if you remember the first seal judgments, six seal judgments, the seventh opens and it's the seven trumpet judgments. The sixth seal judgment has to do with with the sun darkens and the moon turns to blood. And then there's this horrific meteor shower and all the generals and kings and leaders of the people of the earth hide in the hills and say, shake their fist at the Lord because they are mad at him and the wrath of the Lamb. So, when is, which is this talking about? Because there's several times that you have this kind of celestial cosmic darkness. Verse 11, which is on the screen, the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, the strong is the, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So now we have those adjectives again, great and terrible, which seem to suggest that this is near the end of Daniel's 70th week. So what we can say in summarizing it is that this is a unique one-of-a-kind judgment, unlike any judgment that's ever happened in the past, and none like it will ever happen again. The land is destroyed by fire and is reduced to a wilderness. You always get this question, because the words are the same. Is it the land or is it the earth? Okay, that's that. Sometimes you just can't tell. Because it can be talking about the land of Israel, which is probably is in this context. And then that passage in verse 10 talks about earthquakes, the heavens tremble, sun and moon grow dark, stars lose their brightness. And the fourth thing is that the Lord is before his army and his camp is very great. Now, the Lord doesn't show up with an army until he is advancing on Jerusalem. Remember Eight stages to the battle or the campaign of Armageddon. Uh, we'll probably do a review of this 
just so it's back in your heads. But just just remember, everybody thinks that the battle takes place in the Valley of Megiddo. Many of you have been there. We've stood up on the ridge there at at the ruins of Megiddo and looked down on the Valley of Megiddo. And when you, and I don't have a map of Israel up, up there, but when you look at the map of Israel and you look at the Mediterranean Sea coast, it swoops down and there's a curve. That little curve at the bottom of that curve is where Haifa is located. It's the only deep water par- port in the eastern Mediterranean that can, where the um, U.S., I think it's the Sixth Fleet, can go in. And it's right there. When you offload, you're right at the at, at, at where the the river, the uh, Kishon, comes down the um, the valley and empties out into the Mediterranean. And so it's a perfect place to offload and take all of your supplies, all of your tanks and whatever your weapons are, everything, and offload them there as a staging area for a massive campaign. We did the same kind of thing in the first desert storm, is that they offloaded, moved all this equipment and everything and flew it into Saudi Arabia, but the fighting really wasn't in Saudi Arabia. It was down in Kuwait and right along the border. But they had all of the staging areas up in the center of, of um, uh, Saudi Arabia where all the, all the supplies were, were located. So that's the idea. You have several things that happen. And one of them is that Israel has followed God's uh, Christ's command. That's why I believe they're believers because an unbeliever is not going to do anything Jesus says to do. And so they have to be believers. And remember in the upper, in the uh, Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, when you see this, the abomination of desolation, flee to the hills. Don't go home and pack a bag. Don't go to the grocery store. Don't stop to put gas in your car. Just get out of Jerusalem and flee to the hills. And so they do. And they head down across the Judean desert and across the Arabah. That was part of that area I pointed out earlier and over into Basra and Petra, and they are protected by the terrain there until they finally recognize that they're going to all be uh, annihilated unless they're rescued, and so they finally turn to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, I'm not coming back until you call on the name of the Lord. And so they call on the name of the Lord. They call upon Jesus to come and rescue them, and he comes and rescues them. And then after he defeats that army that's chasing them or that has them um, uh, uh, surrounded down there, he's going to lead them. And the text tells us that Judah, the tribe of Judah, is at the front, and they are going to march against Jerusalem. And when they come in from that area, because Zechariah tells us that the Lord's feet will touch down on Zechariah, and so many people read that as if he's coming down uh, from heaven, and he might be. He's, he, he can be anywhere he wants to. After he leads them up, he comes and he lands on uh, the Mount of Olives, and it splits in two, and then those Jews who are trapped in Jerusalem are going to flee to the east, through the split that opens up in the Mount of Olives, and they will be rescued, and then the army of Jews will come in, and they are going to uh, destroy and annihilate the armies of the Antichrist. 
So that's just a quick review. It's the campaign of Armageddon. The battle, the fighting really doesn't take place in the Valley of Armageddon uh, itself. So that's what seems to fit this particular passage. That this day of the Lord is great. It's, it's the Lord's army. His camp is great. He's strong. Uh, he is going to, uh, lead this army against them. So when we look at this thing, then the, uh, fifth thing is this is all called the day of the Lord. So we go through, uh, 10, 11. How far down did I read? I didn't, didn't go down to 13. So then they're told, so rend, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. This is verse 12. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. It's got to be an internal turning. Return to the Lord. That's that word shuv. That's the word Moses uses at the beginning of Deuteronomy 30, that when you turn to the Lord, then Moses says, then the Lord will bring back all of the Jews that God has scattered in all the nations of the world and bring them back. So that word return or turn is very important. That's what it, what it links to. And so the Lord says, Return or turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. This is grace before judgment. Turn to the Lord, for he is gracious and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And then verse 15, we have this shift. Here's the outline here. And so you see here it goes down to uh, 2, 12 to 17 is the call to repentance. And then in verse 18, skip down to verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. In other words, he's going to give them the blessing and the richness of produce and everything they need uh, to make life wonderful. And the bottom line is, I will no longer make you a, a reproach among the nations. So at the end of verse uh, 19, we see the end of anti-Semitism. And then in verse 20, he says, But I will remove far from you the northern army, that is the army attacking. And he says, I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up. His foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. So then we skip down to, let's just skip down to verse 30. Verse 30, we read, he says, Just prior to this, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Now, this is different from the one mentioned earlier. This happens right before the coming, that's the next phrase, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, there's our phrase, uh, shall be saved. And in this context, it is 
it includes eternal salvation, but it is specifically talking about being saved from the total destruction of the Antichrist. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So, that takes us down through the end of chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 3, he says, For behold, in those days and at that time, and this would follow the judgments and the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist and the, the, the sending the false prophet and the Antichrist uh, to the lake of fire and Satan to the abyss. And he says, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So I just talked about that when I said in Deuteronomy 30, it says, when they turn to me, then I will bring those whom I've scattered to all the nations on the earth, I will bring them back. So that's what he talks, talks about here. When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment there. This is the judgment that's referred to in Matthew 25 as the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of the nations, the Gentiles, who have survived uh, the tribulation. So we go down to 314. 314. And here we read, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of the of decision. So this is talking again, I think, about that end event just prior to um, the complete defeat of Satan and the Antichrist. And again, and probably that is referring to that same event that is described in um, back in 2.30 and 31. 31 specifically, for the uh, day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Now, some have gone so far as to connect all of these passages that talk about the sun being darkened and uh, the star's light diminishing as the same event and connect that to the sixth seal judgment. But if that's true, then all the seal judgments are happening right there at the end of the tribulation. You've got a real problem. So that just doesn't fit chronologically when the seal judgments, in my opinion, come in the first half of the first half, the first quarter of those seven, uh, seven years. But as we look at this, what do we see? Here's a um, chart here. I got this from Richard Mayhew's article. And he shows how Joel, who writes early, that's why I put that timeline chart up there, writes somewhat early, second person to second prophet to mention the day of the Lord after Obadiah, uses phrases like destruction in Joel 1.15, the day of darkness and the day of clouds and thick darkness, all of those. Remember, I just read those in Joel 2.2. 2. It's called uh, the great day of the Lord in 2.11 and 2.31, a great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, there are cosmic disturbances in 2.31 and 3.15, and then it's called the terrible day in Joel 2.31. Now, 
Later, prophets who come after pick up all of those themes. That's the right-hand column. Isaiah 13.6 calls it destruction. Zephaniah 1.15 refers to it as a day of darkness. Zephaniah 1.15 and Ezekiel 33, a day of clouds. Zephaniah 1.15 calls it thick darkness. Zephaniah 1.14, Malachi 4.5, it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. Isaiah 13.10 talks about cosmic disturbances, and Malachi 4.5 adds a terrible day of the Lord. So, see how these themes run through here, and we have to put it together. Now, that's what I'm beating my brains out trying to do as I think this through and trying to approach it with sort of a fresh mind. Um, nobody can actually do that in practice, but we attempt it in order to uh, see that that what we're what we're getting to. So that's Joel. So basically, what I have said is Joel's picture of the day of the Lord, the historic application as the locust plague includes no blessing, only includes judgment. Then you get to the day of the Lord that is in the future. And it is a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of thick clouds. It is a day of destruction and horrors and war. But you do not see anything of blessing until after it. And then we leave that and we go to our uh, next passage in Amos. So that's the next page in your Bible if you're there. Now, this isn't going to take us a whole lot of time because Amos only has basically one passage, Amos 5, 18 uh, to 20. So to flip over to that passage, there's the <coughs> there are the two verses there. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts. Literally, that means Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth for armies. The Lord God of armies. The Lord says this. There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, why does he say that? He says that because in his time, which he's, remember, he's in the northern kingdom. No king in the northern kingdom was a good king. They were either evil or worse than evil. Uh, they were all followed in the idolatry of Jeroboam and did the sins of their father Jeroboam, and so they are all condemned for that. And some were worse, like Ahab and Jezebel, who took them even further into the horrors of child sacrifice in the Baal worship and Asherah worship. And so this is when Amos comes on the scene and he is accused by Amaziah, who's mentioned in chapter 7, verse 10, as accusing uh, Amos of being a false prophet, basically accuses him of conspiracy, and he wants to send him back to Judah uh, because Amos's message that judgment is coming conflicts with Amaziah's uh, peace and prosperity and his health and wealth message. 
So uh, Amos will uh, uh, is addressing them here that the day of the Lord is something bad, not the good thing that Amaziah is saying, for that's what they have. They have twisted the words, and the, these uh, false prophets are saying that the day of Yahweh's return is a time of blessing and prosperity. So Amos is going to say, no, 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 no. The day of the Lord is not a time of prosperity. And that's what he says when we get into verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So, again, as we look at this, we've looked at Obadiah, and it's a time of judgment and not blessing. We have looked at Joel, and it's a time of judgment and not blessing. And now we have looked at Amos, and it is a time of judgment and not blessing. So this seems to fit the thesis that it could not be a time that would include the blessing of the millennial period, within, especially since it's a thousand years, uh, that that would not be part of the day of the Lord. But next week, when we come back, we'll look at a few passages in Isaiah. And then I want to take us through some other passages in Isaiah that are used by good men, good scholars to support their view that the day of the Lord is also includes the millennium and work our way through some of those passages as we seek to understand what God has revealed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that there is a judgment coming, that we are thankful that as the bride of Christ, we will not go through that. But that does not mean that we will not go through some kinds of harsh judgment and persecution. And even as there are so many believers around the world today living in countries where they are abused and persecuted and they are imprisoned and tortured and murdered, Father. Uh, so just because it's the rapture doesn't mean that we will escape uh, any kind of horrors that might come prior to the rapture. So, Father, we pray that we would grow strong in your word, that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen us for the only thing that will enable us to endure the darkness that will come even before the tribulation, is the strength of your word. And this nation has gone through dark times in the past and difficult wars, and there have been also uh, plagues, epidemics, and diseases. And so we have lived in a time of, of incredible prosperity for the last 70, 75 years, and many of us have not experienced the kind of horrors that can come. And we pray that you might strengthen us and that we would put your word first, that we might be strengthened by your word to face what comes, but not just so we can face it, but that we can enable others and give them the strength from your word to face whatever might come. And we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.